Both of my oldest sons played in the Lake Mary marching band. And so for eight years, you know, we'd go and watch them march. And you would think I would get used to it, but every time the Rams would score a touchdown or a field goal or something, they had a cannon they would fire. And so you'd be sitting there and, you know, everybody would be clapping and cheering, whatever, all of a sudden, boom, you know, and it just always kind of like shook me to the core because it's just like, that is just loud. And it, it always made me think to myself, what a terrifying thing it must be to be in the middle of a battle, especially if you're not a trained person, you know, you're not a trained soldier, a trained combatant. And I think sometimes we can forget as Christians, that we are in a battle. We are combatants. Paul begins verse 10 of chapter 6, where we pick up this morning, by saying, finally, which means for the rest. Here it means for my final subject or for the final part. Remember, Ephesians is divided into three parts or three sections. Part 1 is chapters 1 through 3, where we learned about all the awesome riches we have in Christ. Part two is chapter four, all the way through chapter six, verse nine, where we learned about how to live in a way that matches our lofty position in Christ. So part three now, beginning in verse 10, addresses the fact that we have an enemy out there who wants to keep us from experiencing the blessings of part one and part two. The enemy wants to keep us from understanding all God's done for us and from living as light in a dark world. So part three teaches us how to combat that enemy successfully. So chapter 6, we begin in verse 10. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So he starts off by saying, finally, for the final part, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. If we're going to be trained and ready and capable combatants, we need to access the correct power. We need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now, I love before Paul says that, he says, finally, my brethren. In other words, Paul is saying that he also experienced this fight and so does every other believer. We're all in this brotherhood together. I, I mean, I know ladies call it sisterhood, but either way, the idea, concept of brotherhood, the idea is we're all in this together. This is all of our experience. Now, this really gives us our first principle then on how to fight the enemy, which is we need to recognize, you need to recognize you're not alone. I'm not alone in this fight. Don't ever believe the enemy's lie that you're the only one who struggles with something or that you're the only Christian who's ever failed in that way. That is one of his chief tools, and it's one of the ways he tries to hit all of us. He will tell you and he will say, no one else struggles like this. No one else is going through this. No, everyone else has a handle on this. You're the only poor loser that can't figure it out. He will always come to you and he'll tell you and say, no one's failed like this or no one's failed repeatedly in this way. He will lie, give that lie over and over again because he wants to isolate you. One of the most discouraging things that I hear often is when people come in for counseling, very frequently they'll come, well, I, I, I wondered if I should have come a couple years ago, or we as a couple wondered if we should have come a couple years ago, but we thought, well, well we don't want people to think we have, we're the ones that have problems. Can I set you free this morning? 
y'all got problems. All right? Like everybody here has got problems. Everybody here is struggling through something. Everybody here is working through stuff. There should be no stigma with, oh, I went to a brother and, and confessed my sin, or I went to a counselor, a church, a pastor, a church, and I sought wisdom. Like there should never be a stigma about that because all of us have stuff. All of us are working on things. All of us are still being conformed to the image of Christ, which means there's parts of us that are not like Christ. So don't wait to confide in someone. Don't wait to get help. We're all in this battle together. No, no one comes into my office and I go, well, you know, I can see you're having a hard time with this, but most of us, we figured this out already. No. A lot of times, the cool part about going to get counseling with somebody or confiding in someone is saying, go, whoa, I've been there. Let me tell you how the Lord helped me through that. Or, wow, I'm still kind of learning to overcome that, but here's the word of God that I'm standing on that's helping me to move in the right direction. We're all in this thing. Don't ever let the enemy isolate you because then he could pick you off. We read this morning in our scripture reading about how he's a roaring lion. The roaring lion is the aged lion, the mature lion. It's also the lion with the brittle teeth, the toothless lion, the one who can't go get his food anymore. So what he does is, as he goes out with the pack of younger lions who are not as experienced, but they have the ability to bring down the prey. And he, with his roar, frightens them into a place where it's not safe. That's the enemy. He's a toothless foe in a sense. He's already been defeated by the Lord, but he has a big roar. You know, there are times he fires that cannon and, whoa, what's going on? And then we bolt instead of we go to the Lord or go to a brother or sister. And so we bolt in a direction where we're isolated and then he can take us down. We're easy prey. Don't let that happen. This first principle of how we're going to fight the enemy, recognize you're not alone. We're all in this fight with you. We're all going through it. Now, understanding that, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The word here, be strong, it doesn't mean make yourself strong. It means you must be made strong. You must be empowered. You must be made able. And we need to be empowered or made able, not in our own strength, but in the Lord's strength. It's not in and of ourselves, but it comes from the Lord. This empowerment comes from Him. And then he explains what kind of strength it is. It's in the power of His might. That word power means His exceptional capability. God has exceptional capability like no other. Now, I have some capability. For example, I have little ones in my house still, not little, little ones, but I've got ones that I'm bigger than. And so I have, I wield the power in a sense. There is a power I wield. We had a situation this week and, and I asked a child about something and, and it, 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 you could definitely tell they were sweating because I do have some power. Some of you, based on your, your status in society, you have some power. But when we look at our own resources and our own power to confront the spiritual enemy we face, we are the ones who are the putty in his hands. So we don't have the ability to kind of gather our strength and go out to fight the enemy. We need to be empowered with the one who has an exceptional capability, and that's the Lord in the exceptional capability of his might. The word might means divine, unique strength or control. So it's not that I gather enough resources from within myself to make myself capable. Paul the apostle, he explained in Romans 7, he goes, 
in me, that is in my flesh, I find no good thing. When it concerns spiritual matters, if I'm going to, you know, pull myself up by my, was it bootstraps? Yeah. I, I hear I mess up my metaphor sometimes, so I don't know what anyone's talking about, but I don't, I don't put my big boy or big girl pants on. I don't tighten the belt, that idea of sometimes when you just got to get something done in life. It's different when it concerns spiritual matters. There are times, probably some of you had to do that this week, where because of the hurricane, you had to just kind of get it done. But that's not how we take care of spiritual matters. We don't just be like, all right, got a marriage problem, tighten the belt, get it done. That's a quick way to a really bad conflict. We need to be empowered by the exceptional capability of God's divine strength, the one who has the most uniquely exceptional capability. And that brings us to our second principle on how we fight the enemy. Not only do we need to recognize we're not alone, but we need to come to a place where we depend fully on the Lord for the battle. We must lay aside our own strength and wisdom, and we need to be filled with His. I can't go into this situation and go, oh, I I can handle this, or I know how to do this. (laughs) Maybe as women struggle with this too. I just know as a guy, my general tendency is when I see a problem is to diagnose and to think to myself, well, if you just did this, then it would be better. And maybe that might work in a work environment or maybe even in a, you know, if you're building something or whatever. But when it concerns anything that our real enemy could be involved with, that is not going to work. We can't appeal to our own wisdom, our own strength, our own experience. We need to lay aside those things and be filled with His unique strength and control. To accomplish that, you need to recognize two truths. Number one, you need to recognize the truth that you're not capable in and of yourself to face even the most simple attacks the enemy throws your way. You have to recognize that. And then secondly, you and I need to recognize that God is fully capable to face even the most deadly attacks the enemy throws my way. Number one, I'm not capable of handling even the most simple attack on my own, but God is more than capable of handling even the most deadly attack in and of himself. These are the two ways that we most frequently fail and fall in. First off, we, we often deem ourselves capable of handling everyday difficulties. And so, we don't read our Bible, or we don't pray, or we ignore God's clear commands because the consequences aren't obvious and immediate. We figure, well, life is good. This is a challenge. I know my biggest frustration with myself is I'm like, why are you not more desperate, Will? Like, let's evaluate, Will. And I talk to myself, so you're going to have to bear with me. Let's evaluate how things are going right now, Will. As you approach, let's say you don't put a priority on prayer time or Bible time or obedience, and you're just going to kind of, let's tackle the day. It's not a big deal. It's a lazy day, or it's an easy day, or not a whole lot going on. Not a lot I need to get on my face about. How does that normally work out for you? Bad every time. But let's do it again tomorrow. Like, why am I not more desperate? Like, why do I not wake up and go, Lord, if you don't help me today, I'm going to mess this whole day up. Like, why is not my waking thought, I need to get on my knees? And it's because there's a part of us that does not believe this truth. We kind of chart out our day and we think, ah, I'll read my Bible later. Or, oh, I'll pray tomorrow. Or, ah, I just got to get this done. And that is a mistake. That's not 
that's not setting ourselves up for success when we meet our enemy. On my best day, if I'm left to myself, I will not have what it takes to face the enemy correctly. I will lean on my own understanding, and I will play the fool, even though it might look like everything's fine. And so I ask you, you know, is, is life good right now? Like, as you're going through it, like, you're like, man, we didn't lose power, and the yard's in pretty good shape, and I don't have to make any insurance claims, and I, got, I was able to go back to work, and, and then, you know, life seems kind of normal. I'm at church today, and that's great, but <laughs> don't neglect your need for the Lord's power. Just because the power's on doesn't mean the power's on. Don't attempt to take on the day thinking you can handle the trifling things that the enemy might throw your way. A second area we frequently fail is when massive attacks come from the enemy. We look to our own might or even the might of those around us, we conclude there's no way to win. I'll never overcome this depression, or I'll never overcome this pornography problem, or I'll never, I'll never be able to understand my spouse enough to, to make this marriage work, or I'll never, I'll never be, be loved, or I'll never. All the things that we look at, we just go, there's, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way it can happen. We look to these things and we say, there's no way to win. The ship's going down, there's no way out of it. That's not true either. Is life horribly difficult for you right now? Well, don't doubt the power of His might. God is more than a match for our enemy. Do you believe that? Yes. He is more than a match for our enemy. I love one of the coolest parts of Scripture is where Jesus, He's talking to the, uh, the disciples as they're going out and stuff, and, and He says to me, He goes, behold, which anytime the word says behold, it means pay attention. And it's like Jesus is saying, make sure you do this, 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 and this, and He says, behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, I don't know about you, like we live in the lightning capital of the world. When I see lightning, that doesn't sound like a safe landing to me. Like when we imagine like the battle that took place in heaven when Satan and the angels rebelled, I think we fantasize a little bit. I think we fantasize a lot. I think it's very much likely that Satan and the boys were kind of sitting, okay, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. And the Lord's like, yeah, this is over. Boom. And then like lightning crashes into the earth, cratering somewhere. There's some crater on the earth that's, we should just say, Satan's fall. Because he felt like lightning, the speed of lightning to the earth. All God had to do is just say, hey, I'm done with this. He is no match for our God. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe that you need the Lord for every attack of the enemy? Do you believe God is bigger than our enemy? Because if we believe the answer to both of those questions is yes, then it changes how we approach life. So we need to be fully dependent upon the Lord. Next, verse 11 says, we need to put on the correct armor. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That phrase put on is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which is the language of the New Testament that Paul was writing in. We don't have an aorist in our English language the way that, that they used it. The tense here, it means, the best way I can say it is like a Polaroid shot. It's a snapshot. It's a snapshot in time. It captures a snapshot. So if someone were to hand you a Polaroid, that's the aorist tense in the Greek. So this is the third principle about how we fight the enemy. At any time in my life, if someone were to take a picture 
The picture needs to show that I have clothed myself in the complete set of God's armor. Like no one should ever take a picture of my life and the picture shows up and I'm just in my pajamas. Like there should never be a time where I'm in my spiritual pajamas. Regular pajamas are okay, just not spiritual pajamas. Like there should never be a time in my life when I'm in the not out to battle clothes. If someone's taking a snapshot of my life, it should always show me as a fully armored Christian. The word here for whole armor is one word. It's a word that the Greeks use, panoplia, to describe the complete set of equipment that was used by a heavily armed Greek infantryman. Not an archer, not someone who's fighting from the back ranks, but someone who is in the hand-to-hand combat aspect, the thick of the battle. Now, Greek infantrymen wore a shield, sword, spear, helmet, greaves, and a breastplate. God gives us different equipment, but the concept is the same. You and I are going to be in hand-to-hand fighting range with the enemy. So that means you and I can't afford at any point in life to be found with missing or no equipment. You're not going to be in a place where the enemy comes and he's like, hey and you're going to go, I'm off duty. Like, that's not how it works. It's not my rotation. There's squadron twos in the front right now. And it doesn't work that way. You are the front line. So you and I must take to ourselves all that God provides for the battle. Because having all of our equipment on is the only way we can victoriously face the enemy. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, you might be capable, you might be empowered, enabled to stand against the wiles of the devil. To stand there, it means to stand your ground, to maintain a position. God has said, this is the ground I want you to hold. If you are, if you are married, you're a husband, you have ground that God's called you to hold. If you are a mom and a dad, you have ground God's called you to hold. So you have to hold that ground. And then certainly, as we'll see in a minute, but we're called to take ground from the enemy as well. That means we are in a face-to-face conflict. In fact, that's the word against here, that you might be able to maintain your position when facing, face-to-face, when you're face-to-face with the wiles of the devil. The wiles just means the evil strategies, the evil methods, carries the idea of scheming to deceive against his deceptive evil strategies, the strategies of the devil. And yes, the Bible does teach that there is an entity called the devil. It teaches that there is an angel who rebelled against God who is now our enemy. In John chapter 8, verses 44, verse 44, Jesus describes him. Speaking to the religious leaders, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he did not abide or didn't remain in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks about his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan or the devil is not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor for hard times or opposition or difficulties. He is a real entity, and he has real schemes. Now, the Bible calls him Satan, which means the slanderer. He's a liar. That's his primary attribute. He is a liar, and he wants to destroy your soul. He wants to kill your effectiveness for God. 
and he wants to steal your joy. If he can't destroy your soul, then he's going to try to kill your effectiveness. If he can't kill your effectiveness, then he's going to try to steal your joy. But he is never going to just ignore you or leave you be, unless you're fine on that path all on your own. Someone who is a liar and a destroyer, a murderer like this, that is not someone that you can greet at the front door with a, no, thank you, we're not interested. That can't be your response, nor can you hide in your home hoping that he will quit knocking and go bother the neighbor. You will end up facing his schemes one way or another, and you need to be able to not just stand your ground, but take ground from him. Matthew 16, 18, that great moment, Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? Some people say you're this, this, or this. Who do you say that I am? Peter goes, you're the Christ, son of the living God. Good job, Peter. You didn't figure that out yourself, though. But then he says, Peter, upon this rock, that confession of faith, who I am, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Now, I've never, ever in my life seen an army rushing another army with gates. Gates are a defensive mechanism, which means we're to be knocking down hell gates, taking ground. Uh, Another passage of Scripture, he says, listen, the kingdom of heaven is, is violent, and the violent take it by force. There's this idea, and that's not, we do that on earthly terms, it's in the spiritual concept, the idea against we should be taking ground from the enemy. We do not approach this battle and be like, all right, now, now you go first and then I go. And there's nothing like that. It's not like, hey, make sure you let me know what you're doing, I'll let you know what I'm doing, and we'll make sure this is a fair fight. No. It's like, if he's down, you kick him, because that's what he's going to do to you. There can be no playing around, no mercy with this kind of stuff. That's why Jesus talked about sin. He's like, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. We have to be serious about this because it's a battle. It's a battle. You ever want to see how serious a battle is? Go find an animal that's been caged or trapped or something, and you see the desperation that they're going through to try to escape. And to do that, to be able to not just stand our ground, but take ground from the enemy, we need to be found wearing the equipment that God gave us. Now, we often make two mistakes with, when it concerns the devil. First, either we ignore him or don't even believe he exists. Or secondly, we pay undue attention to him, making him to be greater than he is. We've already established that the Bible teaches that Satan does exist and that he does have strategies designed to deceive you and me. If you fail to recognize that, then you have already fallen for his first deceptive strategy. 1 Peter 5, 8, 9. The enemy is roaming, looking for whom he may devour. It's like a roaring lion. He wants to chew you up and spit you out. So resist him. Be steadfast in the faith. Be sober. Be vigilant. We have to recognize that. To resist Satan or his minions, we need to be aware that they are looking to attack and not in a moment when we are strong. But while we must be sober and vigilant to stand our ground, we must not think he is under every rock. Satan isn't the cause of all your problems. The roof's leaking, that devil. You know, No, it may just be you needed to repair your roof. It's not always him. We must not think he's under every rock. We don't need to fear him because he's a defeated foe. He's a squatter who has no rights. Now, to have this proper mindset of not giving him undue attention, but recognizing that we have an enemy, we need to understand who he is. And we understand who he is, first off, by understanding who he's not. 
Satan is not God's opposite. God does not have an opposite. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's no opposite of him. There's no other like him. We're just saying there is no other name like his name, right? That's because there isn't. There's nobody who is like him. Therefore, Satan is not all-knowing. He's not all-present. He's not all-powerful. He is a powerful angel, but he has major limitations. And in addition to his limitations because he's a creature and not the creator, he also is defeated. After Jesus defeated him, not as the Son of God, by the way, but as the Son of Man, it tells us in Colossians that he put his foot on Satan's neck and paraded him in front of all the angels. Now, my question is always like, why do you let him go again? But God has reasons for that. It's another Bible study. But the point is, is that he was displaying to everyone, he is a defeated foe. He is a squatter. So while we must be vigilant, we must never, ever be fearful. We don't need to go around binding Satan like a mystical sorcerer with words of power or something like that. That's a child's technique for dealing with make-believe nightmares. He is not a make-believe nightmare. He is a real creature. And we deal with him the way the Bible says, by speaking the truth of God's Word. Our battles are not as simple as to be fought by just going, I bind you, Satan. You know, it's not like the enemy is going, oh, man, I'm, I'm stuck now. Like, I'm in this circle. They just, I can't go anywhere. And I'm not, I shouldn't do that. I'm, I'm not trying to mock those who would say such things. But the battle is in here. That's how the Bible describes our battle. So saying a few words, we'd, I guess the reason I, I do that is because it has more in common with witchcraft than it does with the Bible. Witches will draw circles or shapes and they'll to trap things inside to protect themselves from things. Our words are not mystical, magical things that we can trap the enemy. It doesn't work like that. And our fights are not that simple. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, and it explains casting down imaginations. The battle's in here, in our thoughts. The enemy whispers lies, he brings temptations, and then we combat that with our defensive, our armor, and then with the truth of God's Word. Not by saying a few words. I understand that maybe it's helpful, you know, so I'll turn on Christian music or I'll change my environment. That's fine, but that's not scaring the enemy away. The Word of God is what, what he runs from. Jesus, you know, <laughs> Jesus, when the enemy came out to him in the wilderness, he's not like, I need to turn on some worship music. <laughs> and even the Bible tells us that when Michael the archangel, if you want to find an opposite of Satan, it's Michael the archangel. Michael the archangel, when he was in a conflict with Satan, the Bible says he didn't even re rebuke him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't go, I rebuke you. If Michael can't do that, why should I be doing that? And trust me, if you're rebuking the devil, it's not bothering him because he's not bothering you personally. He's got bigger fish to fry than you and me. He can't be everywhere at once. So he's probably not pestering you. His minions might be, but binding him isn't doing anything. So the idea here then is that we need to use the equipment that God gave to us. Now, we'll get into more of that more when we get to verse 14 next week. So just kind of pocket that for now. We need to use the equipment that God gave us. 
Now, part of using that equipment means we need to understand who we use it against, and that's what verse 12 explains. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So first, it, Paul tells us who we don't use our armor and our weapons against. We don't use it against flesh and blood, which means a person, a human being. Now, the phrase we do not wrestle is very hard to translate into English. It's five total Greek words. Literally, if you read it, it says, there is not to us the wrestling against flesh and blood. What does that mean? Well, the idea is, is that that is not where the battle's at. That's not where our fight is. This is not our realm of warfare, is with other people. The word here for wrestle, it means to engage in an intense struggle against strong opposition until you have pinned them. It is not a point where you just get a few kicks in when somebody goes, okay, that's 10 points for will. The idea is you want to pin them to the point where they're in submission. So it is a to the very end battle. And it is facing someone. It is a face-to-face fight. It is not one where you can just kind of get in a cheap blow and then run away. No, this is one where it's going to be hand-to-hand, and you're going to be right in front of them, and he's right in front of you. These words, wrestle, describe a face-to-face fight to the finish. The loser in a Greek wrestling contest had his eyes gouged out. So you can understand that if you got pinned as a Greek wrestler, it was because you were knocked out. You had nothing left. That is how we approach this fight towards our enemy. But we have to understand that our enemy is not other people. Other people are not our enemy. Now, an unbeliever might approach opposition by using all of their resources to engage in a winner-take-all fight to the finish with another person, but we do not as Christians. That is not how we fight. Our equipment, both defensive and offensive, is not meant to be used to hold our ground against or take ground from other people. Now, other people can be our enemies. The Bible talks about it. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he's not talking about the devil. He's talking about people. So other people can be our enemies, but we are not to handle their opposition against us the same way an unbeliever does. Sadly, the way we see so many in our culture approaching conflict right now. Well, you don't agree with me or you're going to oppose me? Then get ready to go down because I'm not giving up until you're out for the count and I never have to deal with you again. That is not how we're supposed to interact with our enemies in life. That is not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying we don't do that. Jesus instructed us how to face a human enemy. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 43 through 48, Jesus says some very hard things. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And I always dislike the fact that my Bible has that in italics as if it's a Bible verse. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, hate your enemy. That was what the rabbis taught back then, which is why he said, you've heard it said. Jesus wasn't saying, the Bible says, you know, hey, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, no, he's saying, you've heard people say this, but that's not what the Scriptures teach. He says, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Not just use you, but know they're doing it, and persecute you. Why? that you might be like your Father in heaven. You might be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brothers only, what more do you do than others? Do not even the publicans so? Therefore be perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's how we're to treat our enemies. No exceptions. Paul echoed Jesus' words in Romans 12, verses 18 through 21. So this applies everywhere. Verse 17 of Romans 12, Do not repay any man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then I will tell you this, it is not insignificant. And the very next chapter talks about submitting to government. You can take that and do what you want with it. We are called as sheep amongst wolves. That's what you're, that, you say, I signed up for Christianity. All right, you're sent out as a sheep amongst wolves. And let me tell you, there's not a single wolf out there when a sheep comes out and goes, bah, that's going, <gasps> they're not frightened. And we're gonna go out and fight them the same way they fight us. Not only are we not going to win, but we're not going to make an impact for the kingdom. The Bible is super clear about this. It's not, not confusing at all. This is how we treat a person who is an enemy. Our Bible and our faith aren't weapons to use on people. We're to defeat our enemies by doing good. We're to overcome evil with good. So who do we employ God's equipment against? Well, the real enemy behind those evil deeds. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but this is who we do wrestle against. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are to face up in full battle gear against these. And who are these? Well, principalities and powers, it means leaders, first ones. Powers means authorities. Our battle is against fallen angels who once held a position of authority in heaven, but now wield authority on the earth. Paul calls them here the rulers of the darkness of this world. The word here means supernatural powers of the age of this evil world. I've heard people teach, Paul's listing a hierarchy of demons here. No, he's not. All Paul is doing here is he's describing the same group by different ways the Bible has already described them. Jesus, for example, used this phrase about the rulers of the darkness of this world when he called Satan the ruler of this world in John 14.30. Paul called Satan the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I don't understand all the details of it. I don't want to make a theology out of it. But when Adam and Eve fell, Satan and the angels who fell with him took a measure of authority on the earth. So when we see evil in this world, they are the cause, not the Lord. People say, I don't understand why God did that. God didn't do that. That's the wicked enemy, the liar and the murderer that he is. Now, Jesus defeated Satan and the angels who rebelled against him after the resurrection. But the scriptures teach us that Jesus has not come to claim what is rightfully his yet. And so that's why we're still here. Now, that's what the book of Revelation is, by the way. Jesus claiming bit by bit what is rightfully his. Right? What does everybody proclaim when the scroll is given to Jesus? Thou art worthy 
You're worthy to take that scroll and to loose the seals. You're, you're the one who has the right to the deed of the earth. And Jesus, every time he breaks a seal, what he's saying is, mine. I paid for it with my blood. It's mine. And no longer will I tolerate squatters. No longer will I tolerate those who will oppose my will. It is mine, and I'm moving in to take it. And with every seal judgment, with every trumpet judgment, with every bold judgment, God is dealing with the opposition to that claim until all opposition is eliminated. And he reigns forever and ever. But we're not there yet. And so until then, the real evil powers in this world aren't Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump or Xi Jinping or any other political leader. It's the demonic forces behind the people who say and do wicked things. That's what it calls them next, against the spiritual wickedness in high places, literally spirits who have a wicked nature. In 1 John 2.13, it calls Satan the wicked one. We already read how Jesus called Satan a liar, a thief, and a murderer. Our real enemy has no qualms about killing babies in the womb and calling it something else. He has no qualms about tempting you to do evil and then blasting you for doing it. He has no qualms about kicking you when you're down or hitting you when you're at your weakest. Every fallen angel is wicked to the core, no matter how popular it is to read stories or watch TV shows about fallen angels who are conflicted. They are not conflicted. The word wicked here speaks of malice, of bad intentions, a desire to do harm, and that, that's what they're after. God loves you, and He has an awesome plan for your life, but Satan hates you, and he wants to wreck your life. These wicked spirits are in high places in the heavenlies. In other words, Paul's, again, drawing the distinction. They're not people. He repeats it over and over in slightly different ways so we can get our cannons facing the right direction, which brings us to the fourth principle and how we need to fight our enemy. We need to recognize we're not alone. We need to depend fully upon the Lord. We need to put on all the armor of God. And then lastly, we need to get our cannons facing the right direction. This is one of the biggest problems married couples have. We get hurt or frustrated, and then we begin to see our spouse as our opposition and then we either go on the offensive or the defensive against them. What would happen if every time our spouse irritated or hurt us or sinned against us, that we instead got, instead of getting mad at them, we got mad at the enemy? Like what if our response was, how dare you use my beloved to hurt me? Load the cannons, kids. I mean, how different would that be? You know, as your kids are watching mom and dad fight, and you're looking at them, you know what, kids? Mom and dad are struggling right now. Let's pray. We're going to go after the enemy right now because he's after us. Be a whole way, a different way of doing things. Be a whole different way of responding when your husband or your wife irritates you. Part of being victorious in any battle is making sure you're attacking the right target. And you're not winning anything by defeating people. You're not taking any ground or holding any ground when you're taking it from your spouse. You've just injured yourself. Anyway, we'll pick it up in verse 13 next Sunday morning. So read 13 through 18, although my track record says we're probably not going to do all that. But here's the cool part. We talked about how Satan's a defeated foe and, and, and 
we don't have to fear him. Being able to fight and defeat our enemy is only possible because of all we have in Christ, right? Because of everything Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. So this is a good topic to remember what Jesus did to bring us that victory. It's a good topic to go into the Lord's Supper as we're going to reflect on what the Lord did for us on the cross. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you now to remember you and to celebrate, Lord, your great love and your great sacrifice for us, your broken body, your shed blood, this new covenant we have in you. But, Lord, as we think about that, we, we recognize that all that's possible. The reason we can celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, is because you went to battle for us. So, Lord, we, we want to remember that, all you gave up, all you fought for all you laid down, paying the ultimate price, that we might have victory. We give ourselves to you now, in Jesus' name, amen.